0: Hello, my name is Miles Cheadle, and welcome back to another episode of the PS Plus, a Living Faith Bible Institute podcast that serves as a companion to the Postscript. Now on that podcast, my friend, pastor and host Brandon Briscoe, speaks with other pastors and professors from the Living Faith Bible Institute on a wide array of topics. And here on this podcast, the PS Plus, we'll cover more focused topics in a series format. And right now, we're moving through a series focused on Jesus Christ. This is our second episode in that series. So let's dive back into the Word of God and discover what we can learn about the birth of the God-man, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In our last episode, we discussed the eternal nature of Christ, and the implications of Jesus existing before his birth. And so if you missed that, I encourage you to go back and take a listen. Today, we'll explore the act of God putting on flesh and stepping into humanity, also known as his incarnation or the first advent. And so as we dive into this new episode, I want to start by giving a shout out to my good friends, Scott and Becca Stever, Alex and Amanda Allen, and Nick and Hannah Hatton uh, for the birth of their brand new children. My friends are having babies, and it's really, really exciting, and it's kind of miraculous in and of itself. And so, with that, let's dive back in to the birth of Christ. So, if you ask most Christians about the birth of Jesus, one of the facts that you'll be sure to find out is that he was born of a virgin. And unfortunately for many Christians, Christ's virgin birth is it's just become commonplace. It's something that we know. It's something that we believe. It's something that we can speak about in such a cavalier manner without ever truly pausing to consider the grandeur, or the implications of such a statement. And so let's pause right here and let's truly digest the claim of Jesus being born of a virgin. So first, we have to acknowledge that Jesus was born. Like, that's crazy. God came into humanity through the birth canal. Can you imagine? And it gets crazier. You see, Mary, she birthed Jesus. It's Jesus's mother. And she was a virgin. And I know that I don't have to spell out the birds and the bees, but she never engaged in sexual intercourse. And yet she found herself supernaturally pregnant with the son of God. And it's interesting, you know, that there were many supernatural pregnancies in the Bible where God's divine hand, it was just clearly at play. Immediately, I think of Abram and Sarai, but there's Isaac and Rebekah, there's Jacob and Rachel, there's Manoah and Samson's mother, Elkanah and Hannah, Zacharias and Elizabeth, all who were barren, but God supernaturally intervened. And I bring this up because some are tempted to think that in light of all the other miraculous births, that the virgin birth is not so special in the context of the canon of scripture. But au contraire, mon frere, in each situation, we can't overlook the fact that the couple still had to work out their faith, if you know what I'm saying. I'm winking. I'm nodding. Hopefully some of you are picking up on it. But Mary, her situation was altogether unique and that there was no work on her part, aside from God's grace at work in her life. And there was clearly no work on Joseph's part. The scriptures make it very, very clear That Mary knew no man until Jesus was born. And so this is altogether a unique miracle, even within the supernatural pregnancies of the Bible, as it's the first to take place without a man's intervention. And this is huge, not only due to the miraculous nature of it, but the theological implications. And so where can we find the event of Christ's birth in, in our Bible? there's two gospels that detail the birth of Christ, Matthew and Luke. And I know that I'm overdue to lay out uh, the, the unique perspectives that the four gospels present. And so hopefully we can get to that next time. But it shouldn't be surprising that Matthew and Luke lay out the birth of Christ. Matthew, it presents Jesus as the King of the Jews. And so Christ's lineage and his birth It all has major implications on his right to the throne of David. And Luke, on the other hand, it shows Christ in his humanity. And so showing the birth of Christ shows that Jesus entered into this world just like any other man. And and the approach in which Luke lays out, it very much focuses on on Christ's humanity. The fact that he came into this world humbly uh, around a bunch of animals and shepherds. But let's bring all this back into focus. So yes, his virgin birth, it's miraculous. It's really cool. But I believe a pertinent question for us to ask is why is his virgin birth important? Are there larger implications to the virgin birth other than just getting our oohs and our ahs because this is such a a crazy phenomenon? And of course, the answer is yes. While there's certainly hours worth of content that we can explore, today we'll consider how this topic impacts Christ's deity, how this topic substantiates prophecy and how there are common misconceptions that are dangerous to draw from the virgin birth. And so I've got my work cut out for me. So put your thinking caps on and let's do this thing. In Luke's gospel, Mary receives an incredible announcement from Gabriel that she would bear a son. And she asks a very sensible question in Luke chapter one, verse 34. She says, how shall this be since I am a virgin? To which Gabriel answers in verse 35, the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee. Because of this, the child will be the son of God. And so what Gabriel says, I mean, it's incredible. And though I don't understand all of the, the biology and the science of it, this passage allows us to draw some mind boggling conclusions. Jesus's genetic makeup is. It's tied to his virgin birth. He was born of a woman and thus 100% man. And yet he was conceived of the spirit to inherit divine nature and not human nature. Jesus is a 100% man and at the same time, 100% God. On the issue of his virgin birth hangs the very nature of Christ. The scholars call this the hypostatic union. And the Bible calls this the mystery of godliness in First Timothy chapter 3. You see, in the book of Genesis, God promised that the day Adam ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would surely die. And so when Adam ate of that tree, well, he did just that. He he died. And then he went on to pass on his sin nature to all of his offspring. In Romans chapter 5, verse 12, it says, Wherefore, as by one man Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for that all have sinned. You see, sin is a disease passed through the bloodline. And so like a horribly invasive blood disease, sin and death pass on to all of Adam's offspring. And Leviticus tells us that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And this is why blood is required for an atonement for our souls. And this is why Jesus's virgin birth is crucial. His miraculous conception allows him to sidestep the corruption of Adam's sinful nature. Rather than carrying on the sin of of Adam, Jesus inherits a divine nature. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it puts it this way. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. While all inherit sin nature in Adam and death by sin, those born of the second Adam, Jesus, inherit life. You see, our salvation is tied to the doctrine of Christ's virgin birth. If there is no virgin birth, then there is no sinless Christ. And if there is no sinless Christ, there is no atonement. And if there's no atonement, there's no forgiveness. And if there's no forgiveness, well, then there's no hope. We're still dead in our trespasses and sin and destined to hell. Without the virgin birth, the whole house of cards, that's Christianity. Well, it falls. And it's wild. Even nature helps us substantiate this claim. The miracle of birth is completely. Completely confounding. The fact that any of us were woven together in the womb of our mother is all the evidence that this world needs for a divine creator. But as we study out biology and the birth of children, one of the incredible truths is that the blood of the mother and the blood of a child never mix during a healthy pregnancy. God made it so that the placenta membrane separates the mother and child allowing all the proper nutrients to pass through the membrane to the baby without ever mingling the blood. This is how a mother can birth a child with a completely different blood type without the baby ever being in jeopardy. And again, this is a cool fact, but but what does that mean? That means that Jesus, the second Adam, would not have had his blood mingled or tainted with the sin nature of Mary during the pregnancy. Mary, in this case, was literally a vessel of honor used to bring forth the glory of God. In the virgin birth, the very nature of Christ is established, supporting his sinlessness and thus our salvation. This is a big deal. But believe it or not, the topic of Christ's birth continues to get more and more interesting because it's substantiated by prophecy. In Matthew chapter one, verses 22 through 23, we find the first prophetic call out in our New Testament. And I know you're thinking, Miles, well, what is a prophetic call out? And you're asking the right questions. What I mean by prophetic call out is that the author calls out a specific event as a fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy. And I love these because the author does all of the work for us in highlighting fulfilled prophecy in the passage. And so anytime you find a prophetic call out in scripture, you should be asking yourself a couple of questions. What prophecy is being communicated? Which prophet said this? And is it recorded so I can reference it in scripture? And if you've got a, a wide margin, King James, Cambridge edition, like your boy, then your Bible continues to do all of the work for you. And the margin right next to verse 23, I find a cross reference to Isaiah 7:14, where it says, "Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel." So 700 years before the birth of Christ in the years of King Ahaz, Isaiah gives an exact prophecy about the virgin birth. Y'all, God doesn't forget his promises. And God uses prophecy in a brilliant way to authenticate his word. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we find specific prophecy about Jesus being born in Bethlehem. In Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 5, it predicts the horrible slaughter of children As Herod tries to destroy Jesus in his youth, there are incredibly precise messianic prophecies about his birth and about his childhood that came to fruition just as they were predicted hundreds of years prior. And so, yes, the virgin birth, it's miraculous in and of itself. But God, I mean, he's so good that he throws a cherry on top. He uses something as fantastical and as impossible as a virgin conceiving, to authenticate his word, to promote faith and hope in what he says, to keep his promises. And maybe the point to drive home here is that we see the precise way God has orchestrated events to fulfill his word in Christ's first advent. It's incredible. He literally flipped the whole world upside down so that Joseph and Mary would be in Bethlehem for the birth of Christ. And because of this, we can be full of faith that he will be true to his word in Christ's second coming. I got to make sure you got this. Let me be kind and rewind. I said that we can see the precise way God has orchestrated events to fulfill his word in Christ's first advent. And because of this, we can be full of faith that he will be true to his word when it comes to Christ's second coming. And we're about to wrap up. And so let's end with the warning again, that the topic of Christ's birth, it's huge. And there are so many biblical conclusions that we can draw from it. And yet some take it a step further and draw unbiblical conclusions that need to be exposed And there are common misconceptions drawn from the birth of Christ that cannot be substantiated by scripture. And maybe the most common misconception, it actually has nothing to do with Jesus at all. It's the glorification of Mary. And again, I mean Mary, no disrespect, but I think that she would be mortified by the way that she is worshipped today. Aside from it being blatantly heretical in its position, The horrible atrocity is that it actually steals from the glory and majesty that's due God. And it promotes Mary's righteousness over God's grace. And we can thank the Catholic Church, really, for propping up this position. I mean, you can trace these teachings back through all the councils, the Council of Trent and Ephesus. It's promoted in the catechism and in Catholic tradition. From the promotion of Mary's miraculous conception and sinless nature, her perpetual virginity, or literal altar worship, people have taken a testimony of grace and they've completely twisted it. You see, the story of Christ's birth has nothing to do with the righteousness of man. It's that despite man, God entered the human experience with victory and he made a way to redeem sinners including Mary. We don't want to exalt or worship Mary. We want to exalt and worship God. Again, the story of his birth has nothing to do with the righteousness of Mary. It has everything to do with God's grace on on her life. And we don't want to make little of Mary. What a beautiful example for all of us. But the example is that Mary lacked her own glory, and she was used to promote and to bring forth the glory of God. She was a vessel of honor fit for the master's use. And the reality is that today God desires to use you in the very same way. A low and humble servant who could be a vessel of honor fit for the master's use to bring forth his glory because the reality is that we lack our own. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the PS Plus. I'd like to invite you back next time as we examine the four gospels and how they present four unique perspectives on the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Have a blessed day.